Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Yesterday, I was here in the SiriusXM studios with one Rob Thomas. We were talking about his new album, Chip Tooth Smile, and a whole lot more. Let's get right to that interview. Hello, Rob Thomas. Hello. When you say 50 years of great journalism, and now we have this... Does that mean it's what we've devolved to, or is this an, a continuation of 50 years of great journalism? Well, you know, Rob is referring to a little tagline that if you're listening to the podcast, you usually don't get to hear. It's only on the radio version. I wrote that. It's like, take it how you will. It's maybe, right. maybe a little funny. We're yeah. deciding our future right now yeah, as we go. That's right. It could, yeah. go, it could go either it could, way. It could go either way. Yeah, that's, I'm a little that's, scared that's, right That's actually, that's the thing, man. Before we started, you were talking about all the famous women that before you got married, you possibly could have hooked up with, never but, did. but didn't. But now, I, we're not going to name those names on but, but uh, I figure we're public. not going to name the names yeah. but but wait a minute that wasn't like I didn't just walk in the room and just start that's like, true so there was a conversation that, was, absolutely, that led up absolutely I just don't want people to think that I'm the kind of guy that just walks in the room no, and goes no. by the way you knew who I never banged no 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 but it was pretty funny though but we're in a more serious mode now so we're not going to fully go there I have there. no time for frivolity I'm a very important person <laughs> I got stuff to do very serious stuff to do music serious but there was a time there was a time before your marriage when life was freer I guess yeah I think you have to do that I've been married for over 20 years now because I had that time I never had that wonder like oh what what if what you know I went out and had a really fun time I got some you're a young kid you get the keys to the city you get to go have some fun and I went and did it until I realized that it just wasn't a lot of fun anymore and then it was perfect timing you have a new album coming out at the end of April called Chip Tooth Smile I got a chance to listen to it and really enjoy it thank you there's no one doing the kind of thing you're doing on this album which is just kind of straight ahead it's a little more pop rock than I'd say some of your solo albums mm-hmm. which have often been more kind of slightly funkier R&B leaning and, but it just feels a real nice gap and I can feel Butch Walker seems like a great producer for you. He's awesome. You know, it's funny is I kind of just manifest destiny that one. Like I didn't let Butch know that I was going to, like I was telling everybody for like a year. They're like, so what's your next thing? I was like, oh, I think I'm going to make a record with Butch Walker. I was just telling everybody. And then eventually I got around to telling Butch and luckily he, he was down with it. You know, like I had a really good run with Matt Serletic with Matchbox and Solo and the stuff with Willie Nelson and the Carlos Santana. But it was just kind of time, I think, to get in a little new blood to kind of infuse someone that hears me differently. Yeah. And Butch has always been a really good friend. He's also an amazing singer-songwriter himself. So you're looking through that prism as opposed to just a producer's prism. And he plays pretty much every instrument on this record. There's like a couple oh, different, wow. the couple drum tracks that he doesn't and a couple piano tracks and guitar. But almost, you know, 99% of this record is all me and Butch Walker. That's it. Nice. Yeah. And uh, the first single is One Less Day, Dying Young. And we can actually hear a little bit of that right now. From dying young, I see my life Like a train on a one-way track I've made mistakes so it has a few things going on. There's a little bit of a Celtic thing towards the end. What it reminded me a little bit of, and as I was saying, I just wrote a book about Bruce Springsteen's little plug of my own there, but I have a lot of Bruce Springsteen in my mind, but it had a little bit of a wrecking ball feel to it in there. Yeah, I, could, were, I could hear that. I think we were thinking more, like there's a little bit of 80s themes that run through everything oh, on yeah, this record, like sonically. For sure. So I think Big Country was definitely uh-huh. in that mind of like of that kind of Celtic thing, but wrapped up in that pop rock kind of a vibe, you know? Well, the 80s thing, there's a couple full-on nods to Phil Collins, I think. Yes. One is a song called Timeless that nods to, I wouldn't say every 80s, 80s song ever written but just about I think there's like 17 or 20 of them in there <laughs> I describe that song as a, it's an 80s song about listening to 80s songs and almost every lyric is from an 80s song or an 80s song title so it's more like a scavenger hunt to go through and try and figure out like where all the songs line up but then at the end we just 
blatantly played the Phil Collins. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because in any other situation, you can't copyright a drum fill. Like, that's just not a thing. You know, it's not a lyric or a melody. But uh, that one is so famous that we just reached out and got permission just in case. The vibe at the beginning, now, this is an artist that, a little hard to mention at the moment, but the vibe at the beginning does remind me of a song called Human Nature by Michael Jackson. I don't know if that was. Oh, you know, well, we were actually thinking more like time after time, Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper. Okay, well, same kind of thing. Okay, I'm I'm going to stick with that one now. Cindy's behavior has been exemplary. Yeah. As of, as of right now, she still kept that shit together. So, <laughs> so thank you, Cindy. So let's stick with that one. It up. I'm Wait. calling all my idols right now, by the way, and just calling them up and going, don't. Just don't. Whatever you're thinking of doing, just stop. You know, I'm terrible with song titles with the albums I've just started listening to, but is it early in the morning that it also has that little bit at the beginning? Yes. That, that's also an in the air tonight yeah, kind of totally. vibe thing. And yeah, totally. You know, it's funny because when I wrote early in the morning, it was a guitar-driven song. Like I wrote it on acoustic and sent it to Butch, and Butch gave it back to me with those two flavors. One was that little kind of 808 drum sound at the beginning. And then that vocal effect, which I don't think I've heard since in the air tonight. Like it's so unapologetically Phil Collins that you had to listen to the song twice because the first time you hear it, you think that I'm ripping off in the air tonight. But the truth is, I'm just so stylistically ripping it off. Like the lyric right. and the melody are completely different. But like that vibe is so that same kind of a vibe. You know, those washy guitars, the kind of right. ethereal sounds. You know, more like just kind of a nuanced sounds as opposed to like actual parts. Yeah, no, I, I loved what Butch did with that man because him and I were both children of the '80s and we grew up in. 80s radio specifically. Yeah. So not like the cool 80s as right. much, but like the 80s, like 80s, you know, the, re- the actual 80s that most people experience. Yeah, like Foreigner, like we got some stuff on here yeah. that's got Foreigner pads, you know, and we're talking Don Henley, but not Boys of Summer. It's more like Last Worthless Evening Don Henley, you know, kind of period. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you have uh, 80s nostalgia, as do we all, but there's a lot of 90s nostalgia as well. You feel your own nostalgia for your younger days while people are feeling nostalgia for the days when you started making music. Yeah, you know, on the, so the day that my single was released, I got as the new single is coming out, and and I got a call. They had just put 3 a.m. in the classic rock rotation. Whoa. And I thought, man, that is like that's the dream right there. Like, you're, if you're putting your song in classic rock, which you've been you know around long enough for that to happen, but then on top of it, you've got something new coming out. That's wild. So, is there an official classic rock registry? Like, how does that work? Like, I, no, no, it's just you know, a classic rock station had officially put it into their rotation. Got it. So, like so, so someone became the first to declare that classic rock, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is wild. That's a weird feel. But, but the, I mean, the even, best feeling you know, is that even you're, you're, smooth is 20 years old now. Oh yeah, we're getting to so that, like, man. Don't worry. Yeah, so like, that's a whole animal right there. Like, if you think about, you know, I think. Matchbox is now on 22 or 23. Yeah. Jeez. It's wild. So you're 47, right? Mm-hmm. 47. Looking good. Thank you, sir. Did you expect to, A, because you lived pretty wild when you were young, did you expect to, A, kind of live to 47 and be healthy and well and active and B, still be actively making music on the level you still are at this age? No, I think when I was really young and just starting out, I think somehow I simultaneously felt like I was going to live forever and I wasn't going to make it past 25. <laughs> because both of those sounded horribly romantic, right? You know, you wanted to either be James Dean, live fast, die young, or you just had this sense of, you know, that somehow you weren't like everybody else. Everybody else is getting older, but not you. You know, you're just going to stay this beautiful young version of yourself forever and ever and ever. And then the first time your knees crack, you're like, oh shit, no, that's not me. I'm not that guy. <laughs> when you were, I don't even want to say partying because I think it went beyond that. When you were really like not treating yourself well as a really young person, you were kind of leaning towards the diet 25. Yeah, I mean, I, there wasn't a whole lot. I think... 
this job and this world had got me over a bridge and gave me so much and you know but it also got me to the point where I could have a son and got me to the point where I could have a marriage and got me to the point where you know I, th- I think when you're young and you're writing songs you're writing all these songs about love and loss and the, and the truth is a lot of it is speculation mm. you know because you're really really young you haven't really loved or lost anything in the way that you're talking about it you're just kind of being informed by other songs that you've listened to or movies or books you know but then as you get older you actually do find something that you're scared to lose and those things start to mean more to you those themes become more real and so I think you stop looking for ways to manufacture these emotions and feelings and you just start naturally having them on your own and so then you maybe don't need the psychedelics as much (laughs) (laughs) are there early songs that sound different to you now or mean more to you now of your own yeah I think so I mean every record you make I think when you listen to it the best you can hope for is it's the best possible record you could have made at that time so that means that if I've gotten any better over the last 20 years when I listen to the first record it's easy to hear not the mistakes but the limitations it's easy to listen to that as a piece of time capsule and listen to the recording of it and listen to how your voice sounded then and listen to the mix but not so much I can listen to those now when I play them live and I still connect with those songs as a song right but when I hear the recordings of them I don't feel connected to them at all it doesn't sound like me so like, to the point where like people are like oh my god that first record's my favorite and I'm like really like you should come hear me live I'm not sure are you really have you heard this <laughs> I mean this all connects obviously to uh, One Less Day Dying Young because it is like sort of a, I don't want to say it's a middle aged song because none of us want to think of ourselves as middle aged but it has a recognition of aging as something that's not bad. I really like the idea of it. Every day that you're living is one more day away from dying young. Dying young. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of songs about being young forever and never growing old. And when you think about what you're saying, (laughs) pardon me, it's a bleak alternative to not growing old. And I've lost some friends over the last few years and people really, really close to me and they're not going to get that opportunity to get older. And I think you realize that getting older is a privilege and it's not afforded to everyone. And when you start realizing that and thinking that way, you stop the, you only live once mentality and you start to think like, well, you only die once and you live every day you can right up until that point. Well, LCD Sound System had a song a couple years ago that just like, kind of goofing on the idea that every song on the radio is like tonight is the only night we have we're gonna yeah. die tonight we're gonna die young like this is another kind of it's a response to that a and you get bit. but yeah. then you I mean, once you get like past your mid-30s you're heading into your 40s then you start writing songs about like okay maybe not tonight <laughs> maybe next weekend i could pencil you in by tuesday but i'm not really sure so i got a thing <laughs> <laughs> we can die young next week but tonight yeah. i gotta go to sleep yeah and then we were beautiful is another sort of nostalgic <laughs> song i don't know how autobiographical that is or where that's coming from exactly yeah you know it's literally it literally came from my wife. We have a photograph that's in our kitchen, in our home. And uh, it's me and my wife and our friend Dayon. We were like in Australia probably like 12 or 15 years ago. And my wife said, she's like, oh, we were beautiful when we were young. And uh, I realized that she wasn't speaking about aesthetics. You know what I mean? She was thinking about the promise of youth. She was thinking about like all the stuff that we had ahead of us in there. And you kind of could see it in that picture and in those smiles. And that just kind of struck me as a very sad, beautiful thought. Totally. It's not about these younger bodies. It's not about the physical, but it is just about all that promise you have when you're young. That song, by the way, is the only song I didn't do with Butch Walker. Huh. I did that with uh, Benny Blanco. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you about everyone I've talked to who work with Butch, the guys in Fall Boy, et cetera. Like, he's one of those guys with just a tremendous amount of craft. Oh. Songwriting craft, uh, musicianship, production. So what did you learn from, especially having been, you know, worked with the same guy for so long? Like, what did you take away from that? Well, I love the fact that he's not very precious about things. He believes, like, you set it up, and if the song's good and we've got the bones of where we want to go, then he just does it all by feel, as opposed to, like, he doesn't really sit down and sweat the minutiae. He doesn't go through the small stuff. You know, he's not worried about, you know, the vocal having to be this pristine. He'd rather get a good vibe out of something than something that's just kind of perfect. And I think there's no right or wrong way to do it, but, you know, Matt Serletic came from a world where 
it was these very polished records. Yeah. They sounded very, very polished and everything was tuned down and it was it had a certain it's its very own aesthetic and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a certain kind of aesthetic. Whereas Butch is a very much more kind of carefree, haphazard way of let's, yeah. let's throw the mic on it, let's get it down, you know, and let's let's try and that's why I think usually if you hear a record and all the instruments are played by one guy, it doesn't sound like a band in the room. It's missing mm. some sort of vitality. But for some reason when he does it, it sounds like you can hear the band sitting there playing it. That's interesting. I mean, it's weird because you did have Matt for so long. Mm -hmm. And what was it about just kind of moving towards less of an RB thing? This As a solo album, it starts to blur the line maybe between a solo album and a Matchbox sounding record, maybe more than your other solo album. Yeah, maybe. You know, I think Butch could have a lot to do with that as well. I'm writing all the time. And so by the time a record time comes around, I've got four records worth of different stuff and a lot of that once you sit down with the producer you and the producer kind of figure out he helps you pick through like what he's excited about and so I think maybe some of these vibes kind of excited him a little more maybe you know I was writing a lot of these while I was on the road with Matchbox as opposed to being in solo mm. world I don't know anybody that only listens to one kind of music you know like yeah. and so I always want to set out to try and make what you do be as diverse as the music that you listen to you've never met Eddie Trunk who has a show on Sirius <laughs> no <laughs> there's a guy who listens to one kind of music Just one kind of music yeah. <laughs> with all due respect Eddie <laughs> proudly listen to what kind of music what, yeah, one, is it one band hard rock oh metal, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh yeah, yeah no yeah, I do yeah, that's yeah. true though that's a lifestyle of its own I do know a lot of people like that <laughs> but yeah other than that I know what you're saying um, yeah. I do listen to all that kind of music and I think I've embraced the idea of pop rock like I love the idea of pop rock I think it's a giant world that's out there that kind of touches into a little bit of this and a little bit of that and so you know I like being able to do that I think everything on this feels a little more rock and a little more organic pop that, you know and they accept maybe timeless would be the closest one that sounds kind of like tracky exactly. you know but even that it's all organic instruments it's just got a tracky vibe to it I wanted to ask about context because you're making an album in 2018 2019 and it's everything that's a hit on streaming is Migos or yeah. Bad Bunny or stuff that's pretty far afield from anything you would do or would want to do without being like ridiculous yeah, like, <laughs> yeah no it would be like a bad suit <laughs> So do you just sort of stop thinking about this super current stuff? How do you kind of keep the context of what yeah, you're working I mean, on in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think my last solo record, The Great Unknown, was I think the closest I ever came. It was more of an experiment than anything else. Like the way that I've always done records is I go, I write a bunch of songs, I make a record, and then I bring it to my label and I say, here, here's my record. <laughs> and didn't want to just go back to the same well and I wanted to try something different. So me and Atlantic, we got together and we would work with different producers and get tracks and I would write to their tracks and I would work with people like right. Ricky Reed and Wallpaper and Ryan Tedder and it was a fun experiment but at the end it didn't feel like me you know what I mean it kind of felt like me doing something else or me doing a cover song or something and so it was, it was important for me to just kind of go back to these are songs that I can sit down I wrote at the guitar I wrote at the piano these are songs about my life and I realized that that makes me a lot happier and in truth I can't do those other things like if I tried my best it's still going to sound like me and it's going to sound like in the middle of the worst case scenario it won't sound like me and it won't sound like the thing I'm trying to achieve and I'll just be floating in no man's land Right. so the best thing I can do is hope that I was lucky enough to have 20 years of people that are initiated that are kind of might want to come down this journey with me and they're waiting to see what I have to do. And to some degree, anybody that likes me, what you're saying is that you want my point of view. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like you want my POV on things. And so me trying to do something like that to fit what's popular wouldn't be my point of view. And so maybe my job is to keep doing this the way that I do it until nobody cares about it anymore and then stop. Like <laughs> if music doesn't work out for me, I'm not going to go on dancing with the stars. Mm. You know, like I'm not trying to find another way to get my face in front of people. I'm just really, really happy 
if I'm a successful musician, that does matter to me because I like that if I'm putting out music and people like it and they like what I'm doing and they want to go on that journey and come see me live, that does mean something to me. But then everything else about it, not so much. So I realized that it's really just about I'm not going to be this. I'm not going to be cutting edge. I'm not going to be that. I just need to try and write good songs. We are going to talk briefly about the beverage that Rob is just lightly sipping from. Could you very, tell us about uh, this very, beverage? I'm very, very lightly yeah. sipping. As I was, as I was walking into the uh, the beautiful Sirius building, I ran into a buddy of mine who is one of the editors at High Time Magazine. By the way, his name is Danny Danko, and he has a new book called Cannabis, A Beginner's Guide to Growing Marijuana coming out. I want to give him a plug. Absolutely. And he gave me a, I've never even seen like an edible tea. It's like an yeah. Arnold Palmer edible. Yeah, it's a, a little bottle that has 50 milligrams of THC, and, and we we're saying, if I don't know about your tolerance, but if- Anybody's tolerance. If, it, if I yeah. drank that whole thing- Yeah, you'd be on Venus. Yeah, I'd yeah. be Looney Tunes right now. Yeah. I mean, that would be one of the most memorable interviews of all time. So you have something to do afterwards. Yeah, I'm so leaving, I'm, don't are, you worry. That yeah, cap's staying on yeah. now for the rest of the day. I had to taste it, though. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's scared because apparently it tastes good. So it's just it's so to good. Keep, yeah, to keep that's going. the yeah. worst. You're showing remarkable forbearance. Let the record show. It's just sitting right there. It's just going to sit there. It's going to stay right there. It's going to stay right there. Sheila, it's, keep your hands off. It's all good. For a while, you quit marijuana altogether, I think, right? Not, it wasn't a purposeful <laughs> thing. You know, I had started getting some weird panic attacks and freaking out, and I uh, just needed to take a little break from it. I think it was my body's way of just saying, you know, just to see if you can. Do you find yourself writing high? Is that a big thing for you? Yeah, yeah. I, that's what actually kind of got me back to it. I didn't really need it as much for like recreation, but when I started to hit dead ends and if I smoke a little bit, it really kind of just frees up your mind for the where the next place you want to go is going to be. It's a time honor technique. It really is. Yeah, I don't think I'm the first one to think of this. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Martin from Coldplay was the first person who ever told me he took, uh, God, I forgot uh, what uh, this, a, like a sleeping pill. The most famous one. I can't remember. Ambien? But, yeah, Ambien. He, he would take Ambien and then not go to sleep and write songs. Oh, that's crazy. My <laughs> mother-in-law would take Ambien and then she would stay up and it made her a compulsive shopper online. Wow. It's either buying a bunch of shoes or writing Coldplay yeah, songs. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. I think she got the short end of that stick, but I got a fucking awesome uh, camo hoodie out of the deal. So, you know, I'm winning. <laughs> Thanks, from, mom. Not from Chris Martin. From yeah, the, yeah, no. okay, yeah. <laughs> That would be a, a whole different story. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I met Chris once with my dog. I was in a bar in Toronto and it was me and my wife and our dog kind of just sitting there and he came over to the table because he said that he'd always wanted to meet me to tell me that when they first came to America they were doing radio tours and I guess I was doing radio I was always in the stations right before them Right. and every time they would come to a station they would say that I was just in there and I was talking about this new band called Coldplay and my new favorite song Yellow and how oh, great it was and that he always wanted to thank me for that and I thought that was a class act thing to do he's a good dude right so I talked about the idea of like whether you expected to be kind of alive at this stage but you didn't talk about did you think that your music career would last to this point were you always kind of thinking about the long haul I think that I did but out of pure ignorance like I don't think that I really thought about what that would mean and entail do you know what I mean like yeah. if you're lucky enough to make it in the music business it's because you had the suspension of disbelief and this will for ignorance of the odds and that you literally for some reason thought yes of course I should make it why shouldn't I make it you know what I mean yeah and you let that carry you until you lucked into a record deal and then if you lucked into you know finding some success and you go out and you play and, but I really thought that yeah of course we were going to make it we were going to be big until we got signed and then we started playing these shows with these really good bands you know like the first time we pulled up and we were playing like it was us Dave Matthews Smashing Pumpkins and the Rolling Stones <laughs> and I'm just like well shit these guys are good oh my god you know and that's when we started realizing that we needed to really work and then by the second record we became a really good live band which when you think about the state of music which is actually pretty strong but the music business maybe not so much and, and they're you know it's still a kind of figuring out what that means the paradigm of the music business 
but you realize that the good thing about it was like we were one of the last bands that kind of in the last traditional way that you made record you had a guy from a label would come to your town and he would listen to your band and if right. he liked you he would sign you and then you would make a record and you would get songs on the radio and if enough people liked it they would come see you live and then you would sell records and that's the career you know right. and that's how it works and if you didn't succeed right away you might have a little more time to actually become a really good band right people might not know that there was drama and controversy in the very beginning of your career I guess like Matt yeah. longtime producer he heard you in your band Tabitha's Secret, Secret yeah. and it was one of those things now correct me if I'm wrong it seems like it's one of those things classic thing like a producer's like the singer's the guy kind of the thing but we were as a, as a band Tabitha's Secret we were imploding and literally just in the middle of these fights all the time and I also didn't know anything about the music business so I had a guy that would have all these songs that I wrote and he would just bring in these copyright papers and say here we're all going to sign these and so everybody got in on the copyright of these songs and then so when the band broke up Matt came to me and he actually uh, Atlantic Records offered to sign me just me alone and I said that I would do it if I could bring Paul and Brian from the band Paul who was our drummer and now he's our guitar player and our bass player Brian and they said that was fine. I could bring them as long as it was. I was going to be writing the songs, and uh, we did that. But then I was so upset with the other guys that were in this band that all the songs, with the exception of 3 a.m., I threw out every other song that we had written up until that point, and in six weeks or so wrote the first Matchbox record. I was like living at my girlfriend's parents' house and I would just sit in the room all day long and just write and write and write. And so I got that record just because of, out of spite. Right. You know? But I felt... Spite and breakups. The two yeah, best exactly. fuels for rougher albums. Yeah. So I yeah. had the, the greatest thing because, you know, the, the biggest fear is that you have your entire life to write your first record and then it's in between you got to go write another record and it never really seems to work out that way. But I wrote my second record as my first record. I never thought about it that way. And so I felt like going into to the second record, I was like, well, I got this now. Mm. You know? The crazy thing is that there is a version of 3M, of course, by Tabitha's Secret. Yep. Which, if I remember correctly, there was a thing where some radio stations were playing that version. There was they, a whole well, thing. they were, because it, when we were like just starting out, it was happening a lot more back then at Terrestrial Radio, but where you would have local band nights you right. know like an hour or two of just like local music from all over your scene or from different scenes and so 3am was already getting like play in those kind of independent stations and then there were some places that are just they're such like weird like purist dicks about things that they're just like <laughs> it's not as good as the original you know and that band was not a good band like Matchbox 20 wasn't a really good band when we started I think you know we were good in the studio we had some good instincts and we had good songs but it wasn't until the end of that cycle of like touring around the world right that we were like a come see us we were a good right. fucking band you had to band. get some road testing yeah man yeah. I mean, you, I mean yeah. and we were and even then I mean when we started before we got signed we were a van and trailer at least you know through up and down the southeast kind of play a non-stop band for anybody but it's just not the same as going out there and cutting your teeth in front of a large group of people who don't care that you're there when you were writing something like Push because we were talking about context when you hear that song we can hear it for a second she said I don't know if I've ever been good enough I'm a little bit rusty and I think I think very much of the 90s alt-rock radio at the time, sure. it, was, it fits so well in that format. So it's sort of like, I can say this for a bunch of the really good songs from that era, it seems like everyone had sort of Nirvana and a bunch of stuff in their head and were writing in that vein. Is, it, was yeah, that, is mean, that the case to a certain I think extent? that we were definitely manufacturing some angst, you know, <laughs> that maybe was some other emotion just misguided and wrapped up into angst. I think we were oh, maybe, probably... Oh, maybe we're talking about the guys in Tabitha's Secret. We, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. I think we were a little more informed by like 
we were coming off of the Counting Crows and Toad the Wet Sprockets sure. of the worlds as much as because we, we obviously weren't heavy enough to be even though we were giant fans of like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and because I grew up on Ministry you know what I mean and sure. Night Sareb and, and like just all kinds of music out there but I think we were more definitely leaning on the singer-songwriter side of things and what was funny is when that record that first record and it was the only time I feel like me or Matchbox what we did was what was happening at the time and we needed that to kind of get us into that jump sure because then every other time we've had any success it didn't really sound like everything else that it was sitting amongst you know like right. we had Unwell out and it's a song with a banjo and then everything around us was like ludicrous and Nelly you know like it was that late 90s early 2000 hip hop kind of boom that was happening southern hip hop you know I remember being at actually I think it was at my college paper and I got the first Matchbox 20 bio and it said in it, it said you had been homeless for a little while which is true mm-hmm. right but I remember our reaction was like oh Christ Jewel was homeless on the same level like everyone's got to be homeless now yeah. come on this is bullshit it's a total like, thing. <laughs> I, you know it's funny I didn't really talk I didn't do a whole lot of talking about it I think because yeah. I never wanted to compare my situation situation to a situation that is desperate as families that are actually homeless and living on the street. I had an untenable situation at home and I chose to leave and hitchhike around the country. But for me, I was 17, 18 years old. I've got a a fucking copy of the subterraneans in my back pocket. You know, I think I'm Sal Paradise running around the <laughs> running around the world. And like there there was a romanticism to it that was just better than my situation at home. You know, my mom was drinking a lot. She was a very young mom. We would be at odds a lot. And uh I think every day, like had I not done that, if I had just had a you know just a, a supportive, loving, caring environment and just went to Little League every day and, you know, got a nice job somewhere and had a that would have sucked for me. Yeah. You know, like like everything kind of worked itself out and the, everything from the gypsy lifestyle to the just kind of like ingenuity that you wind up learning about how to kind of survive on a daily basis and how to kind of roll with the punches that life gives you. Uh, I think those things came in really, really handy in this job. Let's talk about smooth for a minute. Let's so talk about smooth. You've probably you've done a bunch of interviews today. You probably already talked about smooth, but let's, and we've talked about smooth in the past. But it has such a life to it. Twenty years later, it's like a meme. It's a whole thing. I don't it, know. If it you is know. its own complete universe at some point. And I took the same journey that everybody else in the world took with it. Like I was like, oh, this is a catchy song. This is a good summer jam. <laughs> Hot Latin girls want to dance to, and I'm down. And then we kind of moved into like, God, if I hear this song again, I'm going to shoot myself right in the face <laughs> with a Latin gun. And then fifteen years after that I'm just kind of like yeah you know sometimes it, it holds up like I feel like with Smooth like I'm okay if I never hear Smooth uh-huh. but I love playing it mm. when we play it it's fun every night like it's a jam and when I do it with Carlos even more so but I'm okay with not hearing it again how often do you get a chance to talk to Carlos we talk pretty on the reg you know what uh, Carlos once told us that if he wants someone to call him he doesn't have to text him or anything he can just send out a psychic signal and that they'll that call feels, that feels about right have, have you ever gotten one from him uh, like uh, psychic maybe signal? maybe yeah. that's why whenever yeah. I reach out because every time I reach yeah. out he's like I was just thinking about you <laughs> <laughs> see oh there you go a few more sips of that you're gonna get a no a sometimes like signal, yeah. sometimes we, uh, like we'll both just be in tune because I'll be somewhere drinking and he'll be somewhere drinking and we'll just get on the phone and start talking you know we're always texting each other I'm surprised and this isn't like talking out of school no no I am surprised at Carlos's liberal use of emojis. <laughs> like it's a very surprising thing that a guy like Carlos it just loves the emojis and like gifts of babies dancing and shit like you know the greatest thing that happened out of that whole thing was the relationship that I got from him and, and, and I think meeting him when I did right at the end of you know the end of that record we had all that success and it was three years on the road 
But then all of a sudden, it's like the bus drops you off after three years, and I'm in the middle of Manhattan, and I have no idea how the me after this relates to the real world. Like, I've only existed within the frame of being on the road, and, you know. Yeah. And I meet Carlos, who kind of, at a very uh, meaningful time, taught me the difference between being a celebrity and being a famous musician. Yeah. And that being a famous musician is something that we all, as kids, we wanted. We wanted people to like our music. We wanted people to come see us play music. But if it's not attached to your motive and your intention and your purpose, it doesn't mean anything at all. And so he kind of taught me that at a really, really good time. So it's his fault that you didn't hook up with all those famous women. They That's exactly what it is. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no. I think even he would have been like, okay. come on, Rob. <laughs> now, so, I mean, it was a co-write with like Ital Shure, right? <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. And, and so who wrote the line? Everyone quotes, man, it's a hot one. Who wrote the lyrics? That, that was me. I, yeah, I wrote all the lyrics. And then uh, so Ital, so yeah. Ital had, had, a, had, had a track that was very close to the, the under track of Smooth with a different melody and a different lyric. And I wrote everything up to the chorus. And then it, I thought the chorus actually was the pre-chorus. This life ain't good enough. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was the chorus. And we just like, it needed another lift. And so me and Ital got together, figured out the next melody for that. I was living in Soho at the time, so I was just kind of sitting around in the summer of Soho with my hot Latin wife, just <laughs> kind of, you know, like, and th- so the song was kind of easy for that, you know. Yeah, it was hot summer. Was it probably a hot day when you sat and wrote the, the now Yeah, I'm sure it was, yeah. yeah. I would give up every dime in royalties that I've made for Smooth if I, instead I could get a nickel for every time somebody goes, man, it's a hot one. If you if you ever get a chance, and, and this is to anyone listening, this is where, where Smooth culminates and comes to a head. <laughs> Me and Matchbox did a bit for Funny or Die. Mm, yeah. If you type into Matchbox 20 Smooth, Funny or Die, and it's uh, us doing basically it's like a Jerry Bruckheimer CSI kind of crime show completely based on just the song Smooth and it's so ridiculous it's that it's hilarious and I thought like there was one of the ones when we were pitching ideas that the Matchbox guys would just be like no right but that was imme- not them. Yeah, yeah but they immediately gravitated to like yeah. oh hell yes this yeah. is awesome I mean slightly more seriously I mean it obviously is a tricky thing to balance a solo career and a band thing and there's like emotion and ruffled feelings mm-hmm. that can result so like what's the trick to that because you had a I leave and come back and the whole thing I mean it's like yeah Kyle took off for a little while Um, and honestly for that reason you know they wanted to go out one summer and I was out touring with my solo record and it just I couldn't go out and do the you know and it's not like I don't owe them anything I do but it just I had to kind of make that decision I think we found a really good balance in it now you know, I think I need to do solo because we're all becoming more collaborative and we write more together. So I write so much that I need another outlet to put things so that I can come in and set my ego and real estate for songs at the door and, and let everybody kind of participate. And, but we had to go through it like almost therapy style. Like Paul is my best friend in the world. I just had dinner with him like two weeks ago when I was in LA and we're talking about the, how's the best way to come about like doing the next thing. But you know, he looked at me and said, and this is him talking, he goes, I really think this is one of the best records you've ever made. If I were you, I wouldn't do another matchbox record I would come back and do another solo one back to back because he said he thought that it hurt me my first solo record coming back to Matchbox so well, soon. That's, that's really selfless. Yeah, that's I thought, cool. yeah, I thought yeah. it was kind of amazing. And I don't know if that's right. I think every time I do a solo record, somebody's like, you know, I think you should do another solo record. And then I do a Matchbox instead. And they're like, oh, you definitely should do another Matchbox record. <laughs> well, so they, I just kind I, of, kind of do what whatever, mean, whatever's there. I know what he means. So this is a fresh vibe for you. It feels almost like a, another solo debut because it's a whole other thing for you solo-wise. Yeah, and I think, you know, everybody now, you know, Kyle's been doing his solo thing. He's got his album Wolves out and his band, you know, they had Rivers and Rust and he's working in Nashville writing and producing and Paul has been film scoring for movies and television shows 
and it, now he's and he's been very very busy doing it to the point where he doesn't have time to do anything. So that makes me really happy that everybody's finding uh, you know their own thing, like I'm finding mine as well. We were talking about people dying young and, and mortality. I mean, Gen X man has had a hard time of it. I mean, our cultural icons and all sorts of people just for all sorts of reasons we seem to be losing them. It's, I it's a weird thing. I don't know that we're getting it harder. I think that it's our turn right now. Mm. I think that when our parents, when the baby boomers were going through it and they were losing all these people, it hit them in a very striking way that this is hitting us now because we're losing our own. You know, and especially like Prince. When I think about, you know, like David Bowie was a shared yeah, and he was a thing. boomer. And, and yeah. Tom Petty was shared. Yeah, you know, between us and them. Yeah, you know, he was around, but he was right. a little before us, yeah. and we stumbled in on that story in the middle, and then we went back and kind of like collected the history of it. But we were, you know, somewhere in the middle on. But like Prince felt like ours. He represented our childhood in yeah. so many ways. And I think also there was something important about the grouping, like having so many of the really big ones happened within like one year that made it seem unbelievably eerie like there was some sort of selection happening there but yeah. I think that every generation is going to have that and like eventually it just gets to be your turn where you start losing at the end of the day when you just start seeing people you know you start seeing the names on the newspaper or on the TV or on your phone and the numbers next to those names start getting closer and closer to your mm. number that's when it really starts to you start to pay attention in a way like if you're sitting in a room and you hear somebody call your name ears perk up a little more so you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now I'm Brian Hyatt and that was my my very entertaining interview with Rob Thomas, who has his new album coming out at the end of April. Mentioned that there is a funnier die skit that he and the members of Matchbox 20 did about the song Smooth. And it's funny, of course, because Matchbox 20 was not involved with the song Smooth, but I think they maybe jumped at the chance to mock Smooth because I'd love to uh, put those guys on a lie detector and ask them about the song Smooth because they must have complicated feelings about it, I'd imagine. We can actually hear a little bit of this uh, funnier die. Man, it's a hot one. I'd say about seven inches from the midday sun. I guess this guy couldn't handle the heat. Word to the wise. When this town gets rough, you gotta stay smooth. There you go. Maybe look that up. As far as Rob concerned, that is where the song Smooth and its attending phenomenon hit its apotheosis, so you should definitely check that out. So that was today's show. I should mention that next week I have my first book coming out. It's called uh, Bruce Springsteen The Stories Behind the Songs, and I've been all over Sirius's other channels. I have a guest DJ spot coming up on E Street Radio that will air a few times, so maybe look for that. But the book is basically it's about every single Bruce Springsteen song from every album, and I'd love it if you check it out. Hit me up on Twitter Hi at B, let me know what you think. But again, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now, and we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe leave us a nice review, especially on iTunes. It really helps the rankings there. Or a mildly mean review if you really have to, but leave us a review. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.